0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton.
1: And I'm Susie Ferguson.
0: Today, we're very excited to welcome a special guest, Professor Beth Barron, a professor of history at City University of New York Graduate Center. Professor Barron, welcome to the podcast.
2: Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: First of all, congratulations. This is the first time we've had a a sitting uh, Mesa president-elect on the Ottoman History Podcast, and we're very happy for you, uh, assuming that role. Uh, And this is a big year because we're also here to talk about uh, a recent book that you've released. Uh, This is uh, Professor Barron's third book entitled The Orphan Scandal. Uh, And it'll be the subject of our conversation today. Uh, Previous uh, books by Professor Barron also deal with Egypt, just as this book does, and issues of nationalism, the press, as well as uh, gender Today's conversation entitled Missionaries in the Making of the Muslim Brotherhood will give you all a little glimpse of what's in this new book, The Orphan Scandal, by Professor Beth Barron, uh, released with Stanford University Press this year. So for a lot of our listeners, that uh, title, Linking Christian Missionaries with the Muslim Brotherhood is going to be provocative, but you also have a provocative uh, title or a provocative subject as sort of your lead uh, story. Uh, in this book, which is the, quote, the orphan scandal. Why don't you tell us, give us a little um, small spoiler alert on this, but we'll em- encourage people to read the full book. But tell us a little bit about the orphan scandal and how it frames this relationship between missionaries and Muslim Brotherhood.
2: So th- the orphan scandal is the the story um, around this uh, young girl, Turkya Hassan, who's a Muslim girl in a um, Swedish orphanage in Port Said. Turkey was uh, pressed or pushed um, to uh, to convert uh, from Islam to Christianity. Uh, so the orphan scandal itself is the story uh, surrounding the um, beating of Turkey in the orphanage and then the subsequent uh, events with her release and so on as her story became a national um of national prominence.
0: And this is going on in the 1930s cuz you give us a little sense of that yeah. context.
2: Yeah. So, so it's the summer of 1933 uh the brotherhood itself was founded. Um we'll get to the brotherhood. Uh in 1928. Um so the the story is taking place in this context in which there's a, a um within uh, missionary institutions increasing pressure to convert young children. Um and so the, the story sort of unravels, and within the book, um, I start in the prologue telling this story from the perspective of 10 different people. It's a bit experimental. I've, I, I sort of tried to write it almost like a novel. Um, I hope readers find it of interest.
0: I don't know. I found it very readable. I don't know, Susan. I, I really liked what you did with the, with the narrativistic style.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, also felt it was very readable, a great way to open the the story, which is really kind of an exciting, provocative story. Yeah, and it is also, um, it was one of those
2: stories where I I didn't necessarily want to say, I, I wanted to show that there were different ways of looking at the story, and depending on your perspective, you could see it and frame it in a very different way. Um, and then, I, obviously, as, as you could see, I... I follow the story of what happens to Turkey in the uh, subsequent chapters, just giving you a a little sense of what unfolds after the incident in in the orphanage.
0: Although a lot of the book actually deals with events that uh, uh, precede uh, Turkey Hassan's predicament. Because, I mean, by the 1930s, you have uh, British rule in Egypt is firmly established, but you've also had this post-World War I uh, nationalist uh, rise uh, that you 've dealt with in some of your other research, and so the Muslim Brotherhood is emerging within this very complex political context of uh, anti imperialism nationalism, and then of course the issue of religion, which comes to the fore.
1: I actually want to pick up there on the question of context, which is that um, at one point you mentioned that that this the way that this event both takes place and is narrated in these different narratives that you present is really kind of the product of what you call a semi-colonial context. And I'm curious if you could expand a little bit on you know, how it is that this event is particular to that political context and then also to the context of the sort of history of the missionaries and where the missionaries sure. are at in their project. It, it's this intriguing period in Egyptian history in which
2: Egypt is supposedly either semi-independent or, or, or yeah. semi-colonized. I mean, glass, glass half empty, glass half-full, So there there was an Egyptian government in place. But there were British uh, uh, colonial officials behind the scenes advising... Advising in quotes, <laughs> uh, pressuring, um, watching what was taking place, and and um, and you could clearly see in the this incident and then the fallout the way these officials tried to orchestrate this sort of fallout. Um, and and this this is what semicolon. I'm sure, I'm trying to show what semi-colonialism was in practice, not mm-hmm. just in theory, but in practice the way officials intervened. Uh, British officials pressured Egyptian ministers and so on, um, and that Egypt wasn't uh, didn't have autonomy uh, to act and didn't. have— it wasn't really independent.
1: And you also disaggregate the relationship, which I think is often overly simplified, between a sort of semi-imperial British presence and a missionary project, sure. right? So I'm wondering if you could say more about sort of the complexities of the relationship between the missionaries and the British, and then also maybe where the missionary project is in its sort of evolution in Egypt. And
0: I think it's interesting, if I may just add on that, that the missionaries in question in this particular case are, case are uh, Swedish they're not actually British missionaries, so that adds an interesting layer, right?
2: I mean, there is this sort of sense that the missionaries operated in Egypt because of the British uh, bridge protections. And certainly they did, and the British sense was that the missionaries should provide social services. This was colonialism on the cheap, or semi-colonialism on the cheap. Um, so rather than, you know, have... The, uh, uh, have the state provide these services? There was a um, uh, a sense that the missionaries could provide um, services for orphans, services for, uh, for schooling, for hospital care, and so on. Uh, the so the so the British uh, enabled that; they protected that. On the other hand, the British were also very concerned that um, with missionaries when they were concerned that. With, with a nationalist reaction and also Islamist reaction. They were always concerned that the the missionaries might provoke, and they often did provoke. I mean, there were a number of scandals. The Orphan scandal was one very prominent one, but there were scandals with um, uh, a man named Reverend uh, Zwemer who handed out um, pamphlets and so on in, in, at al-Azhar. So they were constantly on guard against these sorts of provocations because they wanted to keep nationalist sentiment muted. Uh, so so the... the, the British position was a bit more ambivalent or more grey than we tend to think. It wasn't just, you know, giving full carte blanche to missionaries, but also they, they kept an eye on them, as
1: well. I mean, I think this question of you know managing the missionaries is really an interesting one, and uh, you know, I wonder if maybe we could get a little bit more specifically into why it is that it's in the 1930s that this problem of managing the missionaries, um, these scandals, sort of come to the fore, right? Why is this the key moment or the key decade or five years um, in which, you know, the problem of missionaries really kind of rises? What is it about the 30s? Yeah, well,
2: it's it's actually, I think it's the 20s into the 30s. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Muslim Brotherhood is founded in 1928, uh, in Ismailia. And it's, it's founded in the, the canal zone. Uh, and the first branches are also near the canal zone in places like Port Said, um, Suez, and so on, A- and then also in the Delta region. The 1920s is also the period in which the missionaries um, reached their sort of largest uh, largest sum. I mean, you have groups like the American Mission, which is quite numerous. The second largest group is the um, Egypt General Mission, which is the mission that was actually present in uh, Hassan al hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Makhdia, so um, so the the missionaries are reaching their numerical reaching their numerical height in the nineteen twenties, um, and then you have these the these uh, small branches of Muslim Brotherhood, um, and they're coming into contact with one another. The Muslim Brotherhood is very aware of the um, activities of the missionaries, um, and they, they the Muslim Brotherhood sees the missionaries as competitors, essentially.
0: I mean, here we're going to get into a big historiography of the Muslim Brotherhood. Thinking about it in the long durée, it's sort of gone through a lot of changes. Uh, But what do you see as the fundamental nature of this organization arising during the 1920s? Are they uh, essentially a different version of missionary organizations in terms of what they do in practice? Are they emerging directly in response to the missionaries? Maybe you could flesh that out in terms of Hassan al-Banna's own relationship with missionaries in his town or these types of issues.
2: So so, uh, Hassan al is quite clear in his memoirs. Um, He talks about missionaries in his early years. Um, And the first organization he he founded, the Hasafia, um, he was a member of the Hasafia order, but the first group he founded was in response to, in part in response to, the missionaries that he saw in his town. And the missionaries were mostly women missionaries. Uh, mostly single women missionaries, and they had activities like um, um, embroidery or workshops um, or um, small schools and so on. And the missionaries also sponsored Bible women, oftentimes local women who would go to homes and read to people. I, I sometimes even imagine that you know one of these Bible women uh, knocked on Hassan Al door and. Uh, um, he has to come in and read the Bible yeah. um, so it's sort of like it's this, it's this, it's not this theoretical uh, um, abstract um, uh, group that's somewhere out there but it's right. really th- these these were people who had a very real presence in the town in which he lived in, in the town surrounding in the Delta region sure. um, and then in Ismailia where uh, Hassan albano eventually ended up with his first teaching job he um, the the missionaries are a presence. They're not the only presence or influence, obviously, on the rise of the the Brotherhood. The British, the British army had a very large base right outside of Ismailia, and the first um, uh, members of the Muslim Brotherhood were workers on the base who felt humiliated by working in the situation with with foreigners and so on. So the Brotherhood is responding to the um, the imperial presence. Presence of foreign troops, the, the occupation, and they're, but they're also responding to, and they're also responding to the, this Westernization, which is taking place throughout uh, culturally throughout Egypt. But as well, they're responding to the presence of these Christian missionaries throughout uh, throughout the region.
0: That's an interesting point because um, I know at Georgetown, what we do with our, our modern Middle East undergrad students, they read a, a particular statement of Hassan al-Banna talking about the goals uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood and there's a tendency to equate it sort of with socialism uh like as essentially a socialist project taking a particular discursive form maybe you could uh explain that link between you know the missionaries as providers of social services and uh the rise of the muslim brotherhood's role in the area of social services as well
2: so so one of the sort of things that I tr- that I try to do in the book is actually map sort of town by town city by city, village by village, the encounters between the Brotherhood and the missionaries. Um, and what the Brotherhood learned from the missionaries that was that in order to um, bring people in, to attract followers and so on, is that you needed to provide services. So the, the Brotherhood was both reacting or mobilizing against the missionaries and um, uh, sort of rallying against rallying people against the missionaries, providing a sort of vanguard of this opposition and they were also at the same time, in their own words, fighting the missionaries with their own tools. They realized that they needed to provide schools, they needed to provide orphanages, and later on they would realize they needed to provide clinics, which is the same. So services that the missionaries were providing, that they needed to, uh, the Brotherhood needed to provide these in order to draw people away.
1: So what I think is so interesting is that, you know, many of the services that you mentioned, right, um, schools, orphanages, I mean, these seem to focus really on this question of youth, right? And children really become kind of a focus for both missionary and brotherhood um, anxieties and initiatives. So I'm curious what you make of why that is. Why is it that um, children and the young and perhaps particularly female children become kind of objects um, of these projects, if you think that they're, you know, there's sort of a, an outsized interest in children and their future? That's a good question. The um, children were obviously targeted uh,
2: because they were the future of the nation, so to speak, but they, they, were, um, they were envisioned by the missionaries as blank slates. Yeah. Right. That that whom you know the the missionaries could sort of write upon these uh, right. children and change change these children persuade them the most vulnerable of these children were the orphans who didn't have parental protection parental mm-hmm. care um, so the missionaries realized early on that providing orphanages was a, a service at service area that was very underserved in Egypt for a variety of reasons um, so they really. Um, pushed into this area uh, and uh, came to have a monopoly in many ways—a monopoly of orphanage services.
1: Right. So the child is at once a site of great promise um, and sort of responsibility, right, to raise sons and daughters for the nation or for God, um, but also a site of vulnerability, as you say, and being underserved by the state. Children are the future uh, of the nation, um, and the missionaries
2: realized that they could that that they could uh, socialize them, persuade them. Um, uh, teach them, um, and, and at the same time, the, uh, the populations uh, within Port Said, in the different cities, in the canal zone, and, and the delta were uh, were eager to ha- have um, education and these other services for their children because the state wasn't providing them. So it wasn't just that the missionaries were imposing these services; it's that there was a real demand for these services, and missionaries had come to be equated with these sorts of services sure. um, in the in the absence of state provisions.
0: I think this is one of the places where the, the orphan scandal you're talking about ties in with larger questions uh, of nationalism, at least in the Middle East, and perhaps even even more broadly. Uh, if we look at sort of, for example, uh, the work of Lerna Ekmekjolo on uh, post World War One Armenian orphanages and the way that uh, children and women become seen as sort of raw material of the nation that can be even recycled or competed over, whereas men are sort of these static, you know, you can't convert the men, so to speak. So there's this competition over uh, women and children that's going on. In Istanbul, it might be between uh, Turks and Armenians, but in the Egyptian context, we have it, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood and Christian missionaries competing over the the children as well. So
2: the missionaries had had a sense, which is the same sense that nationalists had, that the key to a household was through the mothers. So this was another reason why they would target yeah. uh, target the mothers or char- target young girls. The missionaries themselves were generally the largest number of missionaries were single women. So it was it made sense for them to actually target because they had access to the young women, um, to other women. So there was this, this sort of sense that children were. Sort of fair terrain, and then also young women or women and mothers were were sort of fair terrain. And keep in mind too that the state actually tended to provide, at least the Egyptian state, provide more services for young men than they did for young women. So there's more education services for the men, um, more social services, orphanages, and so on. So what the missionaries were doing was picking up the slack, um, providing services for young for young girls, which wasn't provided for by the state.
0: Well, one of that question, one of the questions that raises for me then is sort of how this relates to your earlier work on nationalism and and women in Egypt. Probably you can speak on it with a greater deal of nuance. Uh, But we see this sort of alliance between certain types of women's movement in Egypt and nationalism. Now, uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood, okay, they have all these social services, but Hassan al-Banna also has very explicit things to say about uh, women and their social roles that maybe are a bit different than some of the earlier Egyptian nationalists. Could you maybe mm-hmm. tell us where that fits in with the story you're telling here?
2: Yeah, actually, the, the uh, sort of character in Egypt as a Woman, my second book, is, she's a character that kind of comes into this book as well in an interesting way. It's Labiba Ahmed. And she um, she actually started an orphanage uh, in the 1920s. In certain respects, the, the, her orphanage was, one can think of it as a reaction to, it's a post-World War I problem of Greater need for orphanages, but also it's in reaction to the realization that missionaries had um, monopolized this terrain. So, Lebiba Ahmed is is also someone who becomes who sees Hassan Al Banna actually as a uh, rising star, mm-hmm. um, and uh, supports him through her journal. Nothing to say, yeah. um, and 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 early on becomes um, one of the um, leaders in the uh, Muslim. The Muslim Sisters, that the, the sort of the the women's branches of the Muslim Brotherhood, and what's interesting, what Hassan al-Banna actually uh, in the Brotherhood does early on in Ismailia is one of their earliest projects is to start a um, institute for mothers of the believers, a school for girls. Um, this, that school is actually eventually taken over by the state, um, but they they recognize that the missionaries are educating young girls, and they respond to that by starting their own school, and they also start sending out women as um, um, uh, roving the women, as uh, in response to the Bible readers, because they recognize that these Bible Bible women who are sent out by missionaries to people's homes um, are, are having inroads into um, into families and so on, uh, get the ear of women, and so the Muslim sisters are essentially mobilized to go out to warn women in the Muslim community about these Bible women and to bring them back to Islam, which is, again, one of the main um, motivations of the Muslim Brotherhood is to sort of gather people up, bring them back to the religion, and reform the religion at the same time.
1: So this brings up a question that I, you know, was curious about. Um, you mentioned the, the sort of single women missionaries. You ma- you mentioned the Bible women, right? And then there are women like Labiba Ahmed, right, who are sort of um, Muslim nationalists who become writers and thinkers. I'm curious, this sort of larger turn to social welfare, right, the founding of orphanages, education, um, what are the implications of this for Egyptian women, right? I mean, is does this in some way like, you know, sort of, Push them into new roles. Does it inscribe them in the, in new projects like that of the Muslim Brotherhood or of the state in a new way? Um, sort of. What does it mean for Egyptian women that this sort of turn to social welfare happens in the twenties and thirties?
2: The turn happens um, in large part also because a lot of these young women are involved in these movements. Um, so, is I mean one shouldn't just conceptualize the Muslim Brotherhood as a um, male organization because it ha- it had a very large Women's um, l- large, in comparison, say to the feminist union and so on, a very large uh, women's component, women's auxiliary, um, and so women 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 took women like Labiba Ahmed and others took a prominent role in self in social welfare, starting orphanages, um, starting uh, uh, clinics, um, mother and wealth, child welfare uh, clinics and, and other sorts of social welfare organizations. Um, and th- this laid the groundwork for uh, this the sort of state then to um, start the um, a ministry of social affairs.
1: And is the is the is the sort of caretaking labor on the part of the state also feminized? I mean, is that also done by by women or or not so much?
2: I mean, to an to extent it definitely is. I mean, at the ministry. Ministers across the years. I mean, generally there are women ministers who are involved in that, and and it's actually I should say I mean you asked a sort of link uh, question about yeah. the link between my work on nationalism and this book. One one thing that I realized when I concluded the book, each as a woman, was that even though that book looks at um, women's roles in the nationalist movement, that many of the women who were involved in the nationalist movement were actually um, got um, disillusioned by it, and they turned their energies mm-hmm. to. Uh, the s- social welfare and social activism, um, social politics.
1: Especially after 1919 when, you know, women who had gone to the streets for the revolution were kind of n- – you know, desires or objectives weren't really taken yeah. Very and seriously. It, and in,
2: and it's into the 1920s, as they see the fracturing of the political parties, and they just become a little bit that um, they're sort of pushed out uh, away from the political parties. These are women who were involved in the women's waft, and so on. They they just become discouraged by it, um, disillusioned. And so, and, and they're also they're, their own questions are caught up with questions of social reform. Um, mm-hmm. and So how do you how do you educate uh, women? How do you strengthen women or girls? In, and boys, how do you strengthen healthcare and those sorts of issues? And that's what they became um, involved in. I mean, it's essentially, middle and upper class women, but they their energies were focused less on joining political parties and more on resolving these social issues.
1: And you see that being the case even among women, you know, members of the Egyptian Feminist Union. Uh, you know, you see this whole field of sort of. Um, the state, the Muslim Brotherhood, the women who are affiliated, you know, politically with all of these projects, all of them kind of turn to this question of social welfare at this moment.
2: Yeah, because, the, because the, the state wasn't adequately addressing it. I mean, the state begins to address it when it realizes that it's becoming such a hot issue. Um,
1: but it's interesting because you're, what you're describing is sort of a push, I mean, I don't know if you want to say from below, given that many of these women are elite, right, or upper class, but, uh, you know, a sort of push from... from people who are not directly affiliated with the state towards a turn towards a kind of welfare state apparatus, which is an interesting...
2: Yeah. And, and generally, there's a sense that the welfare state is started after 52, but they're definitely the seeds of it earlier on. And that's one of the the sort of claims I'm making uh, in the orphan scandal.
1: Right. And seeds of it as a sort of way of, of, of sort of feminized labor, right? And the state as sort of taking on these caretaking roles in a gendered way.
0: Well, I think for our listeners who don't have a, a background in this interwar period in Egypt. The, this discussion might even be a little bit confusing. We're talking about the, the role of women in the Muslim Brotherhood right? as as both targets but also active uh, members of these social welfare programs. Yet today in Egypt, when we think about political debates, one of the major anxieties people have about the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is their specific stance mm-hmm. on the public roles of, of women and whatnot. So I want to press a little mm-hmm. harder on this. Is the Muslim Brotherhood's stance on the social roles of women is it different in any way from that of the Christian missionaries because if it's not that's very fascinating in today 's context or if it is different where do we see that playing out
2: okay, so one one thing is with the Christian missionaries they we tend to homogenize them and think sure. that they
0: all had one position on on women 's
2: roles and, and one thing one thing that I try to do earlier on in the orphan scale and is um, I'm looking at different um, Different missions, uh, American and European. I'm trying to show that, uh, you know, whereas some of the groups were, say, for example, pushing girls' education at, at uh, uh, primary and secondary levels, others of the missionaries were were actually um, quite conservative. So, for example, I look at Lillian Trasher's uh, work and with the Asuit orphanage um, up in um, Asuit. She has. When it came to women, she was actually more conservative than a lot of the uh, Egyptian feminists of that period. She didn't push girls towards higher education at all. She um, she herself was like pushing for these arranged marriages at a time when within Egyptians, at least elite societies, though there were arranged marriages, there were a lot more oppor- there were more opportunities uh, for young people to, to meet, and there was there's this sense that, uh, of romantic. Um,
1: a new model of companion. Yeah, yeah. Marriage. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking and I wrote can, an article yeah.
2: about marriage, whatever. forget what the word is. Uh, anyway. Um, but but Lillian Trashle was quite conservative when it came to, um, uh, even though she herself was this very dynamic, almost charismatic figure that had, that she'd come from uh, American South, gone to Egypt at a young age, started this orphanage that just mushroomed, um, and, and sort of built it almost single-handedly, although with a lot of support from locals. Um, but it mushroomed to, to be a place that took in children uh, and widows uh, um, at, that numbered over a thousand at a certain point. Yet she 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 had this um, uh, particular view of children how they should be accommodated. Some of the other missionaries um, were were pushing for more education uh, uh, and, and pushed ideas of, of just having. Um, Education and towards providing women with the opportunities for employment. So, so the so the missionaries themselves were not necess- didn't necessarily have a margin idea of what was right for women. The brotherhood at the same time um, did endorse women's education. Um, realized that women should be provided with some tools to work. So, for example, in certain areas, this is actually specifically in the. the um, Town that uh, Hassan al Banna grew up in. The missionaries uh, at one point started a, a factory that a lot of young girls were employed in. The Brotherhood, in response to that, uh, in the summer of nineteen thirty-three, starts a, um, a a workshop for women to train them as well. So there is this sort of sense that you need to provide uh, work opportunities for young women, and you need to provide education and so on. the The issue may be for the Brotherhood that you know what, in a certain sense, was. Um, Forward thinking in the 1930s may, may not have changed as rapidly as you know some of the other ideas. Uh, so that you know, the, you know, today they might push for education and work opportunities and so on for women. Um, it's not necessarily as forward thinking today as it might have been uh, then. Though certainly the Brotherhood's perspective on women is very different from other Islamist groups in the region. Um, so, so again, even the Islamists themselves are not thinking; they're not, they're, they're not uniform in their view of, um, you know, what's right for women.
0: And I think that's an important point that comes out of this book. And I don't find this to be a book that's particularly presentist, but in in terms of what it can say to the public discourses on political Islam today, as you just pointed out, the Muslim Brotherhood emerges in competition with Christian missionary organizations. This is very different than some of the other political groups we think of today in under this umbrella of political Islam who emerge out of very different circumstances in terms of who they're engaging with of course it may not be exceptional either but you you start to understand how this uh, notion of a political Islamic movement in the Middle East is kind of flawed below the discursive level you know lumping all these groups together as one thing
2: I mean the the the, um, the Brotherhood certainly
0: grows, Important in in response to
2: the missionaries and in the image of the missionaries, but other groups like like ISIS, for example, are also. Res- I mean, in a certain sense, a response of an, um, a foreign intervention. I mean, so they're def- certainly growing in response to American intervention in
0: Iraq. Yeah, but probably not American... Not American uh, missionaries? ...attempts <laughs> to provide education and health care. I'm guessing that it, they're uh, intervening against something No, but, else. They're,
2: but they're intervening against an American military presence. Right, exactly. So they take a, so they take a military form. Right. So, I mean, in a certain sense, That's it's... Kind of a- yeah, well, it, in a certain sense, ISIS is in response to and possibly in... Uh, in the image of an American power. But it's not to say it's exactly the same. It takes it to. I mean, they use the tools at hand. Um, but it's, in a certain sense, it's, it's a violent reaction to a violent situation. I, I mean, I, I th- one of the things... I mean, the, the book is not talking about yeah, the course. present day. I mean, I end with in the 1930s. But it's definitely... Um, wants to raise questions about the unintended consequences of foreign interventions in the region. Uh, and and there, there tends to also be the sense that, say, with the, the brotherhood, that the brotherhood is—I mean, the brotherhood today is, well, it's the, the, is labeled a terrorist by the Egyptian state and so on. Um, but, but there's a sense to, of seeing it as something completely other, just apart from— a European or an American um, way of a political organization, and what um, what the book is really trying to claim is it's not it's not that other. It's really it was created in response to and in the image of something that's very familiar to us, um, and 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 we need to be careful about our interventions in the world uh, because they do beget things that uh, that we that are unintended. Um,
1: I also think the Brotherhood is often portrayed as springing from kind of pure I- ideology, right? I mean, it's othered not only in a sort of geographic or, um, you know, historical sense, but also that, you know, it comes from these, these texts, it comes from this radical tradition. And I think what what the book really does is show that actually it's, you know, the, the development of the organization is historically contingent. It's, it's rooted in a place and a time um, in a set of circumstances that you really sort of get at and describe. Um, drawing on what on what you were saying about you know the sort of needing to be specific and to disaggregate you know the specific missionaries that you discuss in the book right you have Swedish um, you have British who you see is sort of fading in, in the in the 1920s and 30s um, and the fact that their legacy is actually much larger than the number of converts and to me one of the things that the the orphan scandal and the story of Turkey Hassan suggested is that we could see one of the legacies of the missionary presence as being you know, either producing or marking or helping to produce a new idea about choice, right? And I found that particularly interesting in this story. It's all about, it's about the the choice of the young girl, you know, was she forced, was she beaten, you know, was she coerced into converting or not? And to me, this seems to figure a new kind of female subject in a way, you know, one who is presumed to sort of under normal circumstances, to have the ability to choose. Um, so I'm curious if you know how you see that. If you see that as one of the legacies of these missionary m- movements, um, sort of positing a new kind of female subject who maybe you know w- will be able to choose her path or choose her religion unless she is coerced.
2: that's a that's a, a great comment. I, I wouldn't say that that the missionaries themselves created this new kinds of s- subjectivity, but that the contest between the missionaries and the locals might have. Um, generated greater awareness of this sort of subjectivity for the missionaries this the point that um, th- they were quite adamant that they were not pressuring Turkey to convert because the if she converted it had to have she had to come to it by choice it was very important for them um, but also for for the locals who are pointing out and, and, and for Takiya, who's making the claim that no, no, you know she was um, being pressured. I mean, there's there were these letters of evidence, um, there were marks on her body, a doctors' report that she, you know, she, that she had been beating. Um, so this, she was making the case that there was coercion. But there is the the, the fact that Turkey stands up. She's she makes speeches to uh, local uh, gatherings. That she goes to Cairo on this uh, trip, and she gives interviews at newspapers and so on. So you do see the mer- emergence of this kind of uh, figure uh, of a new kind of resistant figure, um, and, and she is uh, kind of promoted as uh, uh, as a kind of hero her- 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 hero who stands up to pressure. Um, so it is a new kind of subject.
1: I mean, that's a that's a very um, provocative suggestion, which is that the sort of, you know, the, the kind of female figures who sort of become iconic or become heroic um, sort of emerge out of this this interaction between locals, um, Muslims, Christian military um, missionaries uh, and the state. I think that's a that's a that's a very provocative suggestion for thinking about the longer trajectory of feminism. Um in, in Egypt and in the Arab world, yeah, and and I think there's
2: been this this tendency to think that you can isolate these women's movements from international currents, um, but it's these very these very um, encounters which actually generate the the complex circumstances in which you know ideas and actions are taken. Um, so you sort of you know, there isn't any you know it, this notion that you could just have women acting in isolation um, from foreign groups is just doesn't hold up. But it's it's not as if the idea came from the foreign groups. The the ideas were worked out in kind of combination.
1: That's a really nice way of putting it, I think.
0: One of the things about this uh, whole debate uh, that comes out of your book is the role of the press as sort of an arena for discussion and popularization of uh, these questions, uh, particularly the the negative portrayal of the missionary or tebshir, like missionary activities in the press and its association uh, with uh, colonialism. And, you know, thinking of the press, uh, thinking of newspapers and media as a sort of tool, as a sort of technology that has its own, I don't know if I want to say agency, but it has its own uh causative qualities in this whole thing its own productive qualities uh do you see for example the fact that uh the press in egypt was overwhelmingly sympathetic to the muslim brotherhood as opposed to the missionaries as a key uh, aspect of this whole discussion
2: what i would say is that the the um there's a couple of things one is that the muslim brotherhood in a certain sense was the vanguard in uh, bringing the story to light. Once it had brought the story to light, you, the Brotherhood was still this like, very young organization sure. um, with uh, some you know, 20-something leadership and so on. So uh, when the story, uh, as the story became more prominent, the Brotherhood... Um, developed a role that was more behind the scenes so the and the press actually moved forward in a certain way um, to kind of t- not to say take over the reins of this anti-missionary movement um, but as the movement spread you saw the the activism of um, papers that had uh, uh, rather general readership um, so you, you sort of you do see the prominence of the press in this period of disseminating this uh, the notions about um, broadening support for the anti-missionary movement. Uh, the Brotherhood itself, at this point in time, starts its own uh, journal. I mean, realizing it is actually it's founded in June of 1933, exactly in in this period. And the Brotherhood realizes that to to be a player on the stage of Egyptian politics means we must have a a mouthpiece or, or a journal of of record. Um, so the, the press in general plays a tremendous role in. Uh, uh, creating discussion, creating a, a, uh, a climate in which this, the issues surrounding this are um, debated. But it really, it, it mo- it's not, it no longer is just really about this localized story, but it's about the sort of you know, hundreds of Turkey uh, type incidences that are taking place in Egypt as, mm-hmm. as the press kind of becomes very, uh, takes on this investigative role of uncovering what's happening in a number of different um, places throughout Egypt. Um, so the yeah so the press is, the press is the 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 main media at the time that takes the role of watchdog as it were.
1: Well, and also the role of producing the scandal in a way, right? I mean, you know, the narratives become important as they're mediated by these you know these these press organs, right? And and that's also how they tap into these larger concerns or anxieties about you know the role of the British, the role of you know foreign intervention, as you say, right? And um sort of what is what the future of of you know, this generation of women and children is going to be. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and there's, I mean, I'm just thinking of one cartoon that's, that's in the book of, in which you see a number of journals sort of railing against the, the missionaries. Um, and it's, it's very visual that the, the press sees itself as the front line in this battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, and, and their role is not just to report on, um, but actually to construct a certain way of seeing this encounter
0: so what is the implication of this uh for christianity in egypt or christians in egypt let's say cuz there's millions of them at this time period millions of egyptian christians coptic christians uh is are the missionaries framed as foreign and imperial and kind of stripped of their christianity or do we see some kind of implication of this fight you know for for local christians yeah at at the
2: time um wasn't just the, the Muslim population that was concerned about the missionaries, um, yeah. because the the missionaries were actually seeking to reform local the local church as yeah. well. Um, so it was it was it was not it was not a contest between Muslims and Christians. It was really a contest between Protestants or, uh-huh. or to win you know for Protestants and other religions. So so that ha- that does have implications, um, and, and there are. Uh, uh, but one thing that the one thing that I try to do particularly towards the end of the book is also raise questions about uh, kind of not necessarily those left behind but when getting back to this issue of choice I mean Turkey Hassan was making a choice um, made it made it stand uh, not to convert but there were young women who had taken another path I mean young women raised in orphanages or raised in schools who had who were attracted to um, attracted to the there were young women who were raised in these institutions who made a choice t- to convert. Uh, and, um, and, and actually, and ironically, at a certain moment in time, didn't receive the backing of um, the British imperial colonial forces to stand by their choices. So there's actually this kind of irony there that whereas the British protected the missionaries, they didn't protect the converts to the missionaries' religion.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something that, you know, again, thinking comparatively, we see in a lot of places where missionaries are at work is that, in fact, it's those who convert, and I can imagine particularly women who convert, who are, you know, sort of betwixt and between and particularly vulnerable to being kind of left left out of the equation. Um, and, and,
2: and many women saw opportunities. I mean, they saw opportunities for advancement. They saw opportunities for professions. Um, they, they formed bonds. They... Um, they found families and so on. So they had made these choices uh, and, and it's actually, uh, you know, appe- uh, uh, on several occasions or multiple occasions, and appealed through the courts or appealed through the consulates and so on to, to, for protection so that they could, in the face of family and communal opposition, they could uh, continue to stay in their jobs and so on. And, and actually, in the pushback, they're more or less oftentimes sacrificed.
1: That's interesting. So that for women, you know, conversion offers maybe some new possibilities, new opportunities, ways of negotiating across confessional lines um, to achieve specific outcomes, but then also leaves them kind of vulnerable at the end of the day. You know, they get the rug kind of pulled out from under them, which, you know, I think that that can help us to think more broadly about, you know, sometimes these moments that are perceived as expansions of choice or emancipatory or more possibilities for women also carry with them sort of great vulnerability and 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 if one gets back at
2: some of the goals of the missionaries the missionaries themselves oftentimes weren't were concerned about a a larger picture or a long-term picture and that was they they were seeding things and didn't necessarily um they weren't necessarily as concerned at certain moments by the kind of collateral damage and in individual lives that were fragmented or individual families that were fragmented by by their push to persuade, um, or course, young women and, and men as well. I mean, men were also targeted um, to um, to adopt another religion.
0: I think this gets back to one of the points you make, and maybe it's more of a methodological point or a stylistic point, that you have to narrate this... Uh, these uh events thoroughly and from multiple perspectives because you know the orphan scandal is one example uh, of an incident that raises questions about uh actors uh worldview their their expectations and really how they see their own involvement in it and you can't there's no way of sort of talent so if we if we don't tell the story in this way sort of getting at these perspectives it just comes out as a very caricatured and kind of a simple view and and i like that here we have two groups christian missionaries and uh uh muslim brotherhood a political islamic movement two of the most uh, oversimplified and uh, sort of the, the biggest tropes in the history of the middle east and this is really a thoughtful treatment of both of those types of groups. And I appreciated that about the book. I really liked it. And I think it's, I think it's a good example, um, for, uh, historians of the Ottoman empire. You know, this is the Ottoman history podcast. And I know a lot of our listeners, this will resonate with them as well. I mean, my dissertation is environmental history, but at the center of the conflict that begins it is, uh, missionaries going into the mountains, getting into trouble and then Something happens. So th- these are groups that may seem marginal, but they're at the center of something very big that's happening in the world at that time period.
2: No, that's, I mean, th- th- I mean, this is obviously the claim of the book that yeah. uh, th- their numbers may not necessarily be that large, but I think the the impact is actually um, disproportionate to what we've generally tend to think think about it. Um, and, and I also think that the, getting back to this notion of different perspectives, mm-hmm. um, it is important to, I think, to to understand how these different groups understood themselves and their roles, so for the missionaries, they really did believe that they went out with, you know, they went out with the best of intentions, and that they were bringing, um, bringing a message that would help people. And I think they just simply had no clue about the right. um, the
0: um, sort of chaos they were sometimes sowing sure. in their wake. Right. Well, on that note. Uh... We're going to have to wrap up this this interview. Uh, for those who want to find out more about it, they're going to have to check out The Orphan Scandal, available through Stanford University Press. Uh, Dr. Barron, I want to thank you one last time for coming on the podcast. It's been a great discussion. Thank you for having me. And I, and I wish you best of luck with your Mesa presidential duties uh, in the coming year. For those who want to find more, find out more about the topic, we have the information on how to find the Orphan Scandal as well as other publications, uh, secondary reading related to our topic on our website, com. where you can also leave your comments and questions and get in touch with our Facebook community, which by the time this podcast is released, I believe will be over 20,000 uh, strong followers. That's all for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Join us next time, and until then, take care.